You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hello, this is Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed, and today I'm here with Richard Rangham, who is a professor of biological anthropology at, at Harvard. Is that correct? Yes, I'm actually a research professor, which means that's a nice way of saying I'm retired. Oh, okay. You're doing a lot of with your retirement because uh, I have to say that this book right here, which just recently came out, The Goodness Paradox, is really a masterpiece. It's a tour de force, an amazing book. I enjoyed it. I couldn't really put it down. And that's true also of your previous books that I couldn't put down when I bought them and read them soon after publication, including this one called Catching Fire and this first one called demonic males. And so, although they're very different in terms of their topics and uh, subject matter, I think all three of them are just uh, incredibly impactful and influential and interesting and thought-provoking. And so, I'm really excited that we can hopefully talk about all three of these books. Welcome. Thank you very much. And I want to point out that there is a common theme in my own mind among these books, and that is what studying chimpanzees does to stimulate thoughts about human evolution. Yes, and I think uh, the question of who we are, what is human nature, this is something which every thinking human being has been more or less discussing and thinking about since the pre-Socratics. What is it that makes us human? Uh, what is it that makes us different from the other animals, the other species? And of course, they didn't have the language of evolution, but to this day, we still think about what is nature and, and what is culture. And looking at our kind of kindred folks, both chimps and and bonobos, as you do uh, in this book, helps to really understand who we are. I was thinking of starting with your last book, but maybe we can talk about the first book and talk about what drew you to study chimps and, and bonobos. Well, I've always been interested in nature, just enjoying nature. And in the course of doing that, I found myself in my pre-college uh, year, I had the opportunity to spend nine months in a national park in Zambia, where I was fully exposed to wildlife in its kind of rawest sense. It was an area slightly larger than Switzerland that had something like 15 people living in it. And for the rest, it was uh, miles and miles of African bush. And I was given the job of studying a waterbuck, uh, an, an antelope called waterbuck, and the way that the males and females organize themselves and the basic mating system. And that showed me the power of behavioral ecology as it was you know, becoming known to be in understanding uh, an animal society. And then, of course, the obvious question was, how does this kind of approach apply to humans? And so the opportunity to, to go and study chimps was just fantastic because it's hard to imagine any species that is more relevant to thinking about our own. When I started studying chimps, the kind of dominant model for thinking about the evolution of human society was to think about carnivores because everyone was so impressed by the fact that humans seem to eat a lot of meat and the big challenges, the intellectual challenges, the social challenges seem to be associated with how do you get meat. By the time the 70s rolled around, we were only just beginning to get a sense of what chimps were like. You know, Jane Goodall started in 1960, uh, and she was the one who broke open the story about chimpanzee society. But it was not really quite clear how society was organized 
beyond just the family, the family of uh, a female with her dependent young. Because Jane had seen all the chimps that she saw uh, were all part of one continuous social network. And she wondered if that social network just went on forever. There was no social boundaries. And it was in the very early 70s, when I was lucky enough to be studying chimpanzees with Jane Goodall, that the discovery of the social boundaries emerged with all sorts of subsequent questions. So as an historian, when you read accounts of the past, oftentimes those accounts tell you more about the the perspective of the time of the author than they do about the the time that's being studied. A little bit, maybe the same is true to some extent with our study of animals. You know, how we think about chimpanzees, how we think about our closest relatives tells us a little bit about how we, we think about ourselves. In political philosophy, we've got the Hobbesian perspective and we've got the Rousseauian perspective and everyone's trying to figure out like which which is a better, more accurate description of us as human beings and our nature. And in this book, you discuss both chimps and bonobos, and maybe they each line up with those different perspectives. And I have to confess that when I read this book, this really strengthened my view of the Hobbesian perspective based on the chapters on chimps. To what extent are you thinking about the, the implications that most people uh, care about, about human behavior and human nature when you're studying chimps and bonobos and other species? Of course, it's very hard to avoid it. It's, a very, it's very hard to avoid trying to work out what it means when we see either similarities or differences. The big similarity that hit my generation of chimpanzee researchers like a thunderbolt began in January of 1974, when for the first time, a small party of chimpanzees went to the edge of their territory and then stalked into the neighboring territory, found a male in the neighboring territory and crept up to within just a few yards of him without him seeing them, and then leapt on him and beat him to death, basically. So this was the death of Hodi. Hodi was a male in the neighboring group who the researchers knew well, and the, actually the chimpanzees that did the attacking knew well, because the group that Hodi belonged to had broken off as a separate subgroup and become its own group. And what that did was to seal the notion that had been clearly emerging over the previous three or four years of the social communities having extremely distinct social boundaries. The reason this was so extraordinary from the point of view of thinking about human evolution and, and human society was that we had all grown up at that time with what Conrad Lorenz, the great German ethologist, had declared to be true. He had said that animals are unlike humans because they don't kill each other. They have special techniques for avoiding intense violence and aggression, special submissive signals that inhibit aggression by the dominant individual and so on. And now here we were seeing something totally different. And not only that, but it was in one of the two species that is most closely related to humans. So the discoveries of the 1960s and 70s were that chimpanzees, one of humans' two closest relatives, lived in social groups in which relationships among males were really critical in the sense of dominating ordinary social life because the males were bullies. 
they got their way, they would threaten females who, as it were, disagreed with them, who challenged uh, them for food or didn't want to be mated or got in the way. And then we find out not only that, that uh, these males do human-like things of hunting and sharing meat, as Jane Goodall had discovered, but now they go off on war raids and attack members of neighboring groups. The response of a lot of people to that discovery was, be very careful. Don't go and leap into any conclusion about this being something that tells us directly about human evolution. And I think that was right. I think it's right to be cautious. But as time has gone on, I think all the evidence points to this being not only a very regular behavior of chimpanzees, we now know it occurs uh, across the continent in different chimpanzee communities, the uh, tendency to, to take opportunities to kill members of neighboring groups. But I think the evidence is also very clear that the pattern of violence that we see in chimps follows the kinds of rules that you would expect if you're thinking about a human-like pattern. Now, you have to say in humans, you have to qualify that by saying that we're talking here about groups that are different in language. So some of your neighbors might be members of your, your own tribe, your own linguistic uh, unit. And those relationships with the neighboring groups that speak the same language or dialect might be friendly or they might be occasionally hostile, but if they're hostile, then there are systems of peacemaking to bring you together. So they tend to be less serious. But the ones that are always serious, state of war that is very difficult to overcome, are the ones with groups that speak a different language. And there, the similarities between uh, chimps and uh, what humans do is haunting. And, and I'm, I'm now certainly on the side of the people who think that this bespeaks a, a common inheritance that goes back to when we broke up with the chimps uh, six, seven million years ago. I think some people believed that language was something that was necessary for the kind of communal activity that involves war. How is it that chimpanzees can engage in collective violence, intragroup violence, without the ability to coordinate through language? Yeah, I mean, what you see is very little communication as these raiding parties form. Sometimes you might find that one particularly eager male who would be one of the highest ranking males, maybe the highest ranking, the alpha male, might display socially at uh, one or two of his, his colleagues, as it were, just charging towards them at high speed, them just veering off, uh, and then getting him to, them to follow him. But that's about the size of it. You do not see any kind of articulate signaling where they're trying to say, let's go on a raiding party, and let's go off to the east, or, and here's how we'll do it. There's absolutely no indication of that. And the implication is that they have a psychology where if they are reasonably well-fed and, as it were, have got time on their hands, then uh, they uh, enjoy the prospect of going off and looking for opportunities to kill the neighbors or to attack the neighbors. They are very judicious about the way they do it, though. And basically what they will always do is choose to attack when they have overwhelming power. The average a number in an attacking group is eight compared to one. So it's very well designed. And the implication of all this is that what the chimps do is treat all outside members, all non-group members, 
as worthy of death. I shouldn't say all, I should say it's all adult males. So they treat any adult male in neighboring groups as an enemy, and they don't need to communicate about that. They don't need to say, shall we go after this one or not? It's just understood. Of course, we think this is very surprising because it's scary to get involved in an attack because we might get hurt. But that's where this overwhelming power feature is so dramatic, is so important, because the chimps don't get hurt. So they have fun attacking someone that is meaningless to them, except that it is meaningful to get rid of one of the neighbors. Because if you can get rid of the neighbors, pick them off one at a time, then what happens is, what has been seen in the wild, you can expand your territory, get access to more food. Your females start having more food to eat. They have babies at a faster rate. Their babies survive better. All of these things have been seen. There's a horrendous logic to it. So there's an evolutionary logic for the, the group engaging in this type of behavior. What, what's the evolutionary logic for an individual participating in, in one of these raids? Wouldn't it make sense for an individual member of the chimpanzee group to free ride off the benefits of territorial aggression? It certainly would. And this is, remains you know, somewhat of a puzzle for people. Why is it that each male doesn't kick back and say, hey guys, you go off and do all the hard work and I'll stay here and uh, make out with the females. The fact that the attacks are cheap because there's very little risk of getting hurt is obviously a contributor here, but there's still, you would think that they could save some energy and just not go. The ones who tend to go with the highest motivation in the sense that they're least likely to drop out are the higher ranking males. The alpha male is the one who is most likely to be involved. And the theoretical rationale is that the highest ranking ones are the ones who have the most to gain by a behavior that ultimately benefits the young in the group and the, the future reproduction because they're, going to, they're the ones who have most babies. They have enough at stake to justify making sure that this really works. So I think that the similarities that we see between the violent tendencies of humans and the violent tendencies of chimpanzees, this, this is a bit discouraging for uh, people who are looking for kind of human goodness and kindness as a byproduct of evolution. And, and so more and more people, I think, are at least outside of biology, maybe also in, inside of biology, are paying more attention to, to bonobos. How was this species discovered in the first place? Uh, wasn't it believed to be simply a, a group of juveniles when they first encountered the skulls, the early specimens? Yes, it's a lovely story. The bonobos were, in a sense, discovered in a museum by Harold Coolidge, an American primatologist, who was looking in the Royal Museum of Belgium in Tervuren and was looking at a yeah, skull of a chimpanzee, as he thought it was, as it were, and he could see that it looked like a juvenile. And then, to his astonishment, he saw that the bones were fused in the skull, meaning that it was an adult. The ape had stopped growing. So this was an ape with, which, as an adult, had a skull that looked like the skull of a juvenile chimpanzee. And he then checked and found out that this was true of all specimens that came from the supposed chimpanzees that lived on the left bank, on the south side of the Congo River in Central Africa. So he uh, then 
uh, described this as a different species from chimpanzees, a chimpanzee that had a juvenilized head. That was the discovery of bonobos. At that point, nobody knew anything about their behavior. And it took a long time because the Congo was a difficult place to work and the forests in which bonobos live are pretty remote. But a, a Japanese primatologist called Takayoshi Kano struggled through in the 1970s and established a field site where the sort of the basics of bonobo life were discovered. And lo and behold, here we have the other species of chimpanzee, chimpanzees and bonobos, equally closely related to humans. And it turns out, after we discovered that chimpanzees have this extraordinary propensity uh, for lethal violence, the bonobos were kind of the opposite. They were one of the most peaceful of any mammal that had been described. And the interesting curiosity that people enjoyed associated with that fact of greatly reduced was that within their groups, the way that they avoided a lot of ordinary sort of day-to-day -day aggression was by making up or reducing tension using sex. And this clearly was helping reduce the propensity for, for violence. You saw some hostile behavior, though it was possible for large groups of bonobos to come together and have some sort of aggressive encounter. It hasn't really been seen in good detail, but bonobos can come back from it with scratched faces and you know, clearly some fighting's been going on. But even more dramatic, it turned out that bonobos quite often have peaceful relationships, peaceful interactions with bonobos in a neighboring group. And so this is unbelievable to people studying chimpanzees, because you get nothing like that at all. Two chimpanzee males from different groups cannot come together except in a state of, of intense hostility. But with these bonobos, a largish group, 20, 30 individuals, might meet another largish group and travel with them for two or three days and sit and relax with them. And that relaxing includes males from one group having sex with females from the other group, while the males from the other group watch. That's how unaggressive they were. So now we have these two species, equally closely related to humans, showing extraordinary differences in their degree of hostility. And obviously, you have the kind of uh, dynamic that you were referring to of primatologists sort of lining themselves up to say, well, I think the chimps are more important, or I think the bonobos are more important, because humans are basically chimp-like, or humans are basically bonobo-like. I think we got this sorted out now, but there was a period after the bonobo discoveries came in when it seemed as though the science was going to give way to the kinds of multi-century debates that have been going on with humans. Are humans basically good or basically bad? Well, not only are they different in terms of their intergroup violence, but also within group violence, right? Yes. And a big difference is that females have a very much uh, more influential role in bonobos than they do in chimps. So in chimps, if you look at dominance means ability to win a fight. In chimps, every male is dominant to every female. And in fact, the way that a male enters the dominance hierarchy of males is to, first of all, beat up on every female. And by the time he's done that, then he's 
He's in the male group. With the bonobos, you have the males and the females weaving together in a dominance relationship in which some males are dominant to most females and some females are dominant to most or even all males. Males in general are pretty scared of females. And the reason they're rather scared of them is because the females are better at forming aggressive coalitions than the males are. So if there's a squabble between a male and a female, maybe they, they both reached for the same super attractive food at the same time, as it were, and maybe they get into a little fight, then you can pretty much guarantee what will happen, which is that no male will come to help the male, but all of the females within earshot will come shooting along in support of the female. So it's a society in which the males have been trained not to try and take liberties with the females. And so important is the dominance of the females that if you look at which males achieve dominance among the males, it is almost always a male who's got a living mother who is herself pretty dominant. And because she helps him in his interactions against other males. And that help is really vital. So when we think about whether humans are violent or nonviolent, I think you make a very important distinction between uh, reactive and, and proactive violence. Could you talk a bit about that and also talk a bit about the difference between wild and, and domesticated animals, right? Why is it useful to think in terms of these different kinds of, of violence? To me, it's a super important distinction. Let me just begin by saying that I think it's very clear that it's an important distinction when thinking about humans. The kind of violence that many people are impressed by with humans is, is war, intergroup violence. And war involves a very different style of aggression from the kind of aggression that we encounter, if we do, in day-to-day -day interactions. The classic murder in America is two guys in a bar, and they insult each other, it gets intense, they go out into the parking lot, have a fight, and one of them dies. That is reactive aggression. That is two individuals getting to the point where they just feel intensely angry, their emotions are aroused, and uh, they want to get rid of the threat. They react in all sorts of violent ways. Very different from what happens in war. In war, planners, maybe they are generals or people sitting in their desks in Washington pressing buttons, think about how to attack an enemy. And having made a plan, then they organize to go and, and implement it. It doesn't have the emotional uh, valence of reactive aggression like the two guys in the bar. It can be entirely rational, calm, deliberate uh, form of aggression. And that is called proactive aggression. So this distinction between reactive and proactive aggression is basically a distinction between within-group aggression and between-group aggression. I, I'm not saying you can't have one or the other crossing the boundaries, as it were, but that's the, the big distinction. Okay, now let's think about humans compared to other species. Proactive aggression in terms of trying to kill members of neighboring groups is pretty rare in animals, but it happens. We discovered it in chimps in the 1970s, 
And now we know that uh, it happens in wolves, it happens uh, sometimes in lions, it happens in spotted hyenas, it happens in you know, a few animals that have come up with this, this adaptation. And it can be very important, but still, humans are, are definitely on the very high end of the tendency to use proactive aggression to kill members of neighboring groups. What about reactive aggression? So this is interesting because the fact that we are always slightly alert as we go about our daily lives to the possibility that somebody might be mean to us, might blow up and get angry, whatever, might suggest that reactive aggression is also really relatively elevated in humans. But that doesn't seem to be true at all. Because if you look at the rate at which uh, fights break out within groups, we have lovely data for chimpanzees compared to humans. And with chimps, it's somewhere uh, between 500 and 1,000 times as frequent in chimps as it is in humans. So within humans, there's quite a bit of variability, right? Between, say, people in environments of strife and, and conflict versus environments that are relatively peaceful. Presumably in, yeah, in yes, a prison, it's going to be different from in a, in a corner office. There's very peaceful societies, like a famously peaceful one in Thailand. And, you know, if you take people in a monastery, probably, you know, there's a bit less losing of tempers. But the important thing is, it doesn't really matter, this variation, for the purpose of making the claim that chimps are much more uh, reactively aggressive than humans. Because you're not going to find anyone, any population that has anything like the frequency of daily fights that chimps do. Oh, isn't the traditional story really one of group selection? Wouldn't that be the, I think most people in, in the biology world would probably point to that as, as one explanation that's quite common. So in order to talk about this, we've got to talk about wild versus domesticated animals. Everybody loves the experiments that were started by Dmitry Belyev in the 1950s in Siberia, which showed what happens when you select against reactive aggression. So these were experiments that involved a variation of the red fox called the silver fox. These silver foxes brought up in Russia in sort of mom-and-pop fox fur farms as part of the fur industry. They had been incredibly valuable. So for 50 years, they'd come across from Canada. They were being bred in Russia. And at that point, they were still pretty wild. So there's a lot of snarling and a lot of difficult behavior with regard to human management. Belayev wanted to test some genetic ideas of his own. He became head of a genetic institute and decided to see if he could select for the tamest of the foxes. So in 1958, he started an intense selection pressure. And the intense selection meant that what he would do is he'd have his assistants walk towards different fox cubs when they were something like six weeks old and write down the distance at which the cubs snarled at him and then was able to choose, sometimes among hundreds of individuals, the ones who had allowed the observer to come closest. And within 10 years, they had some very tame animals, so tame that they behaved like dogs, of coming towards people and uh, looking for ways to get affection from the people. And the other thing that happened was the dramatic thing. So in addition to selection against reactive aggression, and therefore 
evolving these psychological changes in the foxes that meant they were tame, you got all sorts of unselected changes happening as well. And these were the most dramatic and obvious was white patches appearing on the fur in greatly increased frequencies. Just as many dogs, many horses, many cats have got white socks, have got a white tip to the tail, have got a white patch on their forehead, so did the foxes that had been selected for tameness. And this turned out to be one of a number of features which we think of as traits associated with domestication. You get up to 20 different traits popping up unselected for some fascinating biological reason that is still being studied. Let's now shift to thinking about the domesticated animals that we, we know about that have been domesticated for thousands of generations. If we look in the archaeological record, if we look at the time, say, five to 10,000 years ago, when many animals such as cows and sheep and cats and so on were being domesticated, archaeologists quite often want to know when they find some bones. Now, was this a wild out version or was this a domesticated version? And there are some fairly simple rules for deciding which it was, because domesticated animals show differences in their bones and teeth from wild animals. They tend to be smaller with slenderer bones. They tend to have a shorter face and smaller teeth. There tends to be reduced differences between males and females. So male horns and male fighting apparatus is reduced. And the brain gets smaller. So if you have a, a species that has all of those characteristics, you say, well, that's been domesticated. In other words, there's been selection against reactive aggression. Okay, now cut to humans and go back in the fossil record and you find that humans show all four of those features. The thing starts 300,000 years ago. They start the process of looking like Homo sapiens. They have the short face and smaller teeth and they also have reduced brow ridges, which is another feature that turns out to be associated with aggressiveness in humans. And fascinatingly, there is a really interesting feature, which is the relative breadth of the face in humans, which we see changing during the latter Pleistocene from 200,000 years onwards uh, to the present. When we go back in time and see, as we do, our ancestors with increasingly broad faces as they go back, we can be rather confident in reconstructing that they were increasingly aggressive, reactively aggressive as we go back. So you've got those kind of anatomical changes. You've also got genetic changes. The data are still in the early stages, but uh, work particularly by uh, a group led by Cedric Box in, in Barcelona is getting very convincing about a whole series of genetic changes that have happened in sapiens that look just like the, domestic, the changes that you get in domestication from wild animals. So, you know, this is a very exciting area because this is going to be increasingly testable. Now, we know who domesticated the cow. We know who domesticated the pig. And, of course, it was us. So who domesticated us? This is obviously a case of, of self-domestication, right? I can't avoid the historical context of saying that Darwin considered that problem and said there was no one to domesticate us, and so it couldn't happen. And he'd been interested in, in the idea that we were domesticated, but he couldn't think of how it would have happened. But I think we now have a very convincing argument 
that has been produced by Christopher Boehm by looking at accounts of the lives of people living in small-scale society in our days where there is no police system, there is no prison system. The control of violence has to be done entirely by the resources of the people living in small camps. And the answer is that the society comes together to face down a bully. A bully will be ridiculed, cajoled, teased, shouted at, sung at, ostracized, made to feel quite clear what the society thinks about him. But what Bohm showed is that there are many accounts in which the bullies thought they could get away with it. Because all of those social pressures mean nothing if you are a sufficiently immoral person who just doesn't care what other people think. You'll just carry on doing it. This is the question that economists are always asking, right? Why you have a group of peaceful people, then it, it seems to be not mutation resistant, right? Someone who comes in who is going to throw their weight around and be violent and, and defect from any cooperative arrangement is going to ultimately get ahead. How do the economists answer that question? That It's about reputation usually, right? It's about if you don't have a mechanism of reputation, then you need to resort to something like a social contract that's enforceable. And, and economists have a difficult time really explaining the kinds of social systems that we have in place. Yeah, no, and it is an interesting problem. But I think that the answer that Bohm came up with is right, which is that when all of those social pressures fail, you have to resort to execution. Lo and behold, it turns out that hunters and gatherers on every continent use execution. There are lots and lots of descriptions of executions in small-scale societies. But you still have the collective action problem, right? Because why would I, as an individual, have any incentive to, to punish the, the bully? Why not just let all my colleagues punish the bully and I'll just sit out from the punishment? Because that presumably punishing the bully is dangerous, right? The most dangerous thing that you can do in small-scale society is to be a nonconformist. Here's the way I think about it, that you've got up to, say, three or 400,000 years ago, uh, you have our ancestors living in small groups dominated by an alpha male uh, of a chimpanzee style or a baboon style in which the male has no moral feelings at all with regard to fairness or justice or anything like that. It's, he acts with total self-regard with regard to bullying others, taking from others, mating rights, and so on. And that alpha male continues merrily along his way until the time when language gets sufficiently sophisticated for the subordinate males to be able to make a plan. Now, this is the point at which the question you asked about do the male chimpanzees communicate with each other in planning to attack members of neighboring groups? This question now becomes salient when we ask it about do males communicate with each other when they're going to attack members of their own group? Because now you've got a different dynamic. Instead of everybody is an enemy, you have an awkward balance where some males might be allied to the alpha male, some males might be intimidated by the alpha male to the point they don't want to try and do anything about it. You have to talk to each other and generate an agreement both to carry out a killing, we're all in this together, and to make sure that subsequently you will forgive anybody who has been part of that killing. 
So this is getting a little bit subtle. But that's the idea, that they, they are able now for the first time in evolutionary history to share intentions because language is sufficiently good. And once they can do that, then uh, you can have somebody knowing that they will be supported by the rest of the alliance, killing somebody on their own with an arrow in the back or whatever the mechanism is. I think the, the additional answer here is, if you don't show that you are part of this group, then you run the risk of developing a reputation that says you're not part of the group. And so, in other words, once the originally subordinate males have come together in an alliance with each other to take down the alpha, then they have developed a social power that is terrifyingly effective because they can look at each of themselves and say, is Joe really with us? I saw him doing something suspicious the other day and Joe can develop a reputation for being a little bit selfish, a little bit uh, dangerous. Let's get rid of Joe. And the males don't mind getting rid of several Joes because they have more for themselves. And you call this the tyranny of the cousins. Yes, this is the tyranny of the cousins. And then, of course, the scary thing about this is that, that not only are they going to monitor and regulate each other, but they're going to do the same with the females. And people often ponder about why it is that the law and politics, religion, all tends to favor male interests. And surely the answer is that the very origins of the institutional structures of these systems of coalition lie in the males who were getting rid of any bullying male. The reason that you have these alliances, I think, goes right the way back to three or four hundred thousand years ago when the first males started realizing the social power that they could have by, by forming an alliance. Is the promotion of monogamy an end stage of this development of the conspiracy of beta males to kind of level the tyrants? You know, monogamy is a funny thing because we tend to think of us as a monogamous species, but actually, of course, in many ways, we are a polygamous species. You find that in what, 80 something percent of human societies, 85 percent, I think it is, you have a series of men who are married polygynously. Still, most men are married monogamously because even if most women are married polygynously, there's still going to be a bunch of wives uh, left for the monogamously married men. Well, when you say, what did these changes do to make us monogamous, you have to start thinking about what life was like before then. And the way I would think about it is that the alpha male had been very effective in getting more than his fair share. Now, that still happens to some extent today, that alpha males can get great disproportion. So why do you suppose Darwin and others were so or at least didn't even think of this idea of violence being disfavored and wanted to emphasize that the idea that cooperation was favored. Is this just a distasteful idea? I don't think Darwin was afraid of distasteful ideas. I'm not enough of a Darwin scholar to, to, to have has a really good answer to that question, but Darwin thought about domestication, couldn't think of a mechanism for it, and abandoned it. But then when he was thinking about the evolution of morality, which in my mind is very closely aligned with the question about domestication, he did mention his observation that violent men 
tend to get executed or imprisoned nowadays, which is functionally a temporary version of execution, as it were. We also talk about Durkheim and the idea of reputation and how important it is. And I think it's somewhat of a mystery as to why people put so much emphasis on reputation. And yet, even at a very early age, people are concerned about reputation. The feeling of rejection is is similar to the feeling of pain. It's deeply felt in similar parts of the brain. I think this story that you're proposing suggests that if you're not concerned about your reputation, this could have fatal consequences. That's right. It's a startling thought. You have to swallow a little bit hard to think that execution happens sufficiently often that it had these kinds of powerful selective effects. But if you just take that jump and, and say, okay, that individuals who developed a bad reputation for whatever it is were vulnerable not just to being jeered and, and sneered at and teased and that sort of thing, but actually were vulnerable to being executed, then it really does seem to explain a lot of the, the patterns of human morality and larger associated things and i think that the uh, the execution hypothesis basically solves that sort of problem and by the way you know people think that uh, it's unreasonable they often wor worry that the rate of execution that is needed to sustain this seems unreasonably high but we know very little about rates of execution in the past new guinea is a you know the place in the world probably where people have lived with least contact with the industrial, heavily agricultural world. And there are two studies there of different peoples where they sorted through accounts of how people had died. And they found that I think 12% in one case and 20-something percent in another case of deaths had been executions. And presumably they so would be disproportionately male, so that would be more than 12% of the males. Uh, yes, exactly. It was more males than females in, in both cases, which is the typical pattern. And uh, so, you know, this, these were societies full of fear of sorcery and witchcraft, in which, as is repeatedly found in small-scale society, if there is a death, then somebody is blamed for it. You know, nowadays, if somebody dies from a disease, we blame the germs. But those people uh, routinely would blame another person. It's as if they're looking for any possible case that somebody is trying to interfere with the success of the group. They're so alert to the possibility of nonconformists undermining society. Well, you say this also might explain some of the unusual features or paradoxes of, of morality, right? Like the preference for inaction over action and so forth. Yes, people who study moral responses responses to moral dilemmas have come up with a series of generalizations and those generalizations tend to fall or they align with the notion that moral responses tend to be self-protective. At the same time, the answers to these moral dilemmas that people tend to find is that individuals try to distance themselves from taking responsibility for anything. And that seems to fit with the notion that they're not quite certain how this is all going to pan out, but you don't want to be 
taking a risk where people might in the future saying it was all your fault. People do not like, you know, they hate being put in a position where they're going to take responsibility for killing someone, even if it would take, save three other people's lives. And the reason seems to be that people are nervous about exactly how others will respond. We're scared that if we do the wrong thing, we are going to get severely punished. And punishment would normally mean your reputation is hit, and if it's hit sufficiently badly, you actually risk execution. Well, I'd hate to let you go without talking about this book, Catching Fire, one of my favorite books. I've recommended this book to dozens of people. Well, thank you. It's great. My friends who enjoy raw food diets, we, we actually have a restaurant here in Berkeley that sadly went out of business even before the pandemic, which served only raw foods. You really highlight the absolutely transformational impact that fire had on, on humanity, not just in terms of our, our biology, but also in terms of our society, division of labor, social organization, and so forth. We don't have time, really, but I'd love for you to just summarize exactly how important was it for humans to discover fire, and, and why is it that this discovery and the timing of the discovery and the impact of the discovery wasn't really recognized until fairly recently? If you look at the archaeology of fire, then it does not go back to the beginning of humans. When I started getting into this in the 90s, the consensus was that fire was first adopted about 250,000 years ago. Maybe a little sporadic, and it may be before then, but nothing serious. When people saw the archaeology of fire beginning a quarter of a million years ago, that was one and a half million years after the right. genus Homo had become sufficiently like us that they could walk down Main Street and take clothes off the peg. They looked like us. They thought it happened much more recently, is what you're saying. So yeah. everyone was assuming that fire came in after humans had achieved humanity, in the sense of being our shape and size. So the challenge that I offered to people was to say, look, that just doesn't make sense. Fire is so important in terms of reducing the amount of time we spend cooking, increasing the amount of energy we get from food, making our food uh, safe and not toxic or poisonous, protecting us from predators, allowing us to sleep on the ground, all these different things. You cannot have it coming in a quarter of a million years ago and see nothing happening in evolutionary anatomy. And, and so then I started edging further and further back. When could it possibly have come in? And there's only one answer. And the answer has to be at the beginning of the genus Homo, the point at which our digestive system gets reduced, our mouths get smaller, our teeth get smaller, our guts get smaller, to judge from the flaring of the ribs and the width of the pelvis, and, very important, the time at which we no longer were good at climbing trees. So obviously we had to sleep on the ground. Well, no one's going to go and sleep on the ground in uh, any of these areas in Africa unless you've got something to defend you, namely fire. So if we, if we were to tie all three books together, Goodness Paradox, Catching Fire, Demonic Males, we began the conversation by talking about how the differences between chimpanzees and bonobos was driven by their, their foraging methods and the availability of, of food and the environment. Is the invention of fire the thing which created a, a vastly different way of feeding ourselves, which was the spark which led to the formation of human social groups and, and social organization and led it to be so radically different from these other cousins of ours? Well, I think in very simple ways, and my simple ways are 
that fire was the thing that changed us from an Australopithecine into Homo. It changed us from being an ape into a very early kind of human. It gave us our anatomy, it gave us our digestive system, it gave us a way to spend so little time actually chewing, changing from more than 50% to less than 10% of the day, so saving us many hours per day, that we could do other things with our time, spend more time making tools or exploring the environment, hunting, and so on. So fire made us homo. And then I think that we are homo sapiens, and I think that language made us sapiens. Even if you're not a biologist, even if you're not an anthropologist, even if you're not an archaeologist, I think if you're interested in any issues related to humans, if you're interested in the nature versus nurture debate, if you're interested in the Rousseau versus Hobbes debate, regardless of where you are, if you're a humanist or a scientist, you have to read Richard Wrangham. So three amazing books, Goodness Paradox, Catching Fire, Demonic Males, doesn't matter what order you read them in, fantastic, I think, really wonderful books. I really appreciate you, Richard, for joining me today. Thank you so much. Great questions. Really fun. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Thank you.